from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, Dr. Ben Carson has lived the American dream. He grew up in poverty, the second son of a young divorced mom, and really overcame impossible odds to attend Yale as an undergraduate and then go on to medical school. He became a prominent pediatric neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins, leading world-renowned surgeries. After his speech at the 2013 prayer breakfast, he was recruited to run for president in 2016. He became the 17th Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in March 2017. Secretary Carson has led an extraordinary life, and I'm pleased to welcome him as my guest. I am particularly excited to have somebody who I think is a genuine American hero, a remarkable human being with a great personal story and a deep dedication to public service. I first met Dr. Carson at the annual prayer breakfast on February 6, 1997, when I was Speaker of the House. Both of us were Republican candidates for president. I ran in 2012 and Dr. Carson ran in 2016. And I was just stunned by the wisdom, the common sense, and the really great teaching skills that he had. And I'll never forget, he started by going through a series of descriptors of part of your brain, to which, of course, none of us had a clue, stopped and said, that's not because I'm necessarily smarter than you. It's because that's what I studied and learned. 
and everybody can study and learn. And I think the best way to understand how truly remarkable it is is to start with his childhood. So if you would, Ben, take us back to where you came from and how your mother helped you learn to have goals and ideals. As a child, the first eight years of my life were not that bad. You know, my parents were together. My mother discovered that her husband was a bigamist when I was eight years old, and that resulted in a divorce. And she only had less than a third grade education. So for a short period of time, we actually didn't have a home. And then some relatives in Boston took us in. And it was in a typical tenement, large multifamily dwellings, ported up windows and doors, sirens, gangs, murders, rats, roaches, the whole nine yards, everything you see on television. I remember as a nine-year-old sitting on the ghetto stairs looking through the building across the street, out of which all the windows had been broken, and there was a sunbeam shining through it. It made me think about my future. And I remember thinking that I probably would never live to be more than 20 or 25 years old, because that's what I saw around me. My older cousins were killed. I mean, I saw people lying on the ground with bullet holes. So that seemed like just the way things were. Subsequently, we moved back to Detroit. I was at the bottom of the class. And we live right exactly next to the railroad tracks. They say you're born on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> we were just on one side of the track where it was mostly a white community versus mostly a black community. So I actually ended up going to a white elementary school. And I was the bottom of the class, but everybody expected you to be the bottom of the class. <laughs> that was just the way things were. So that wasn't surprising to anyone. But my mother was just devastated by the fact that I was doing so poorly and my brother was doing so poorly. And she was actually a very wise woman, even though she didn't have much of the world's goods and didn't have much education, she was wise. And she observed in the homes that she cleaned, and she cleaned two or three homes a day, went from one job to the next, because she didn't want to be on welfare. And she observed that they did a lot of reading and didn't do much television watching. And she came home and imposed that upon me and my brother, and we were not happy at all, as you might imagine. But you have to know my mother. She said, you're going to read these books, and we had to read them. And as I was reading about scientists and surgeons and explorers and entrepreneurs, it became clearer and clearer to me every day that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you in life is you. It's not somebody else. And everybody around me was talking about how the system was stacked against you and how these racist people were doing everything and how you couldn't make it. I kind of just took all that stuff and shoved it out of the way and started concentrating on what you can do, not on what you can't do, and started taking advantage of opportunities that existed, started talking to my teachers about things that they knew that were available, not maybe in the school that I was in, but maybe in some other places around the city. And I would go to those places and avail myself of those opportunities. And it made a tremendous difference in my outlook and in my academic achievement. I became top student, won a scholarship to Yale, 
subsequently on to medical school and just continued to push the envelope, even in medical school, when I decided that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. There had only been eight black neurosurgeons in the world. Everybody thought that was really a weird thing for me to do. But when God hands out talent, he doesn't care what color you are. And I had already adopted that mindset. So I took to neurosurgery like a duck to water. And the rest of it turned out pretty good. How big a culture shock was it to go from Detroit to Yale? Oh, my goodness. It was a huge culture shock. First of all, it was the first time I'd ever flown on an airplane. And when I went to college, it was the first time I ever went to a restaurant. Going from poverty to a place where you had real silver in the dining room and oriental rugs and these beautiful paintings. Now, I learned a little bit about art because back in Detroit, I had a goal. I wanted to be a contestant on a television program. You may remember GE College Bowl. Right. And used to come on every Sunday. It was my favorite TV program. Sometimes they would ask questions about classical music and classical art, and I didn't know anything about that. You'd never learned that at Southwestern High School in Detroit. But I started going down to the Detroit Institute of Arts and roaming to those galleries every day until I knew every painting, who painted it, when they were born, when they died, what period it represented, just getting ready for college ball. And I even determined which college I was going to attend based on that program because I had enough money to apply to one college. And I said, I'm going to apply to the college that wins the grand championship in college bowl. Well, the grand championship that year was between Harvard and Yale. And Yale just wiped Harvard out. I mean, it was ridiculous. I said, I don't want to go to school with a bunch of dummies. So I applied to Yale and they accepted me. <laughs> but it worked out okay. Major culture shock. When you get to Yale, probably the most important event is outside the classroom because you meet Candy Rustin. Yes, absolutely. Candy was a couple of years behind me, but I had met her and I knew that she was a musician. And our church needed an organist. And so I just said, you're a musician. Do you by any chance play the organ? She says, I'm a violinist, but I know how to play the keyboard. I said, would you mind coming to our church and maybe trying out for organist? And she came. She wasn't a very good organist, but <laughs> but she started singing in the choir, and that's how our relationship grew, and it all worked out, and uh, we've been married for 45 years now. When you invited her to try out for organist, was that really sort of an indirect way of having a date? <laughs> uh, no, I was sincere about it, but when she came that Sabbath, and she played a solo on her violin, Preludium and Allegro by Fritz Kreisler. Oh, it was just so beautiful. And I think that's when it really kind of started. One part of your life that's a little sobering, and that was the accident that you and Candy were in. We had been recruiting for Yale. I was a senior and Candy was a sophomore, and we both wanted to go home for Thanksgiving. Neither one of us had the funds to be able to do that, but school would pay your way back home if you agreed to recruit for them while you were at home. So we actually were on Yale's dime 
we got to go out to restaurants. We got to really know each other. And the last night we were both visiting, she was visiting her sister and I was visiting some friends at the University of Michigan before we drove back to New Haven because we had to have the car back the next day. So we were going to drive all night. And on Interstate 80, by the time we hit Youngstown, Ohio, we had both fallen asleep going 90 miles an hour. And I was awakened with the vibration of the car as it was going off the road, heading toward a ravine. And I turned the wheel, and my car just started spinning, like a spinning top, instead of flipping over and going down the ravine. And they say your life passes before your eyes before you die. It does. It was like a little newsreel. And, I, I and then the car stopped in the correct lane so I could pull off the shoulder just as an 18-wheeler was coming through. We were both awake by that time. And we just said, you know what? The Lord just spared our lives because he has something for us to do. And that's the night we started going together. That's a great story. There are not many people who can say that their relationship really began with a life-saving incident. That's right. It was on the 28th of November. And ever since that time, we celebrate the 28th of each month. That's great. She's a great person. Kristen, and I really feel very honored to have the two of you as friends. Now, you end up going into pediatric neurosurgery, which is a very complicated specialty because you're dealing with young children and with different frame of reference. And yes. probably your most famous achievement was back in 1987 when you were the lead neurosurgeon of a 70-member surgical team that separated conjoined twins, Patrick and Benjamin Binder. I mean, that must have been... Yes an unbelievable experience to have a team that size and a challenge that great. Well, it was kind of an interesting situation because, you know, a couple of years before that, I had my 15 minutes of fame for doing hemispherectomies, an operation in which we take out half the brain and children with intractable seizures to stop them. And then the year after that, I had my 15 minutes of fame for operating on twins that were still in the mother's womb. And I remember saying to Candy, if there's another 15 minutes of fame, I said, the media is not completely stupid. They'll say, isn't that the same guy? And then they'll start looking into my background. And they'll say, this is just amazing. And that's exactly what happened with the Bender twins. And that was an incredible endeavor. We practiced that operation for five months, figure out how to do it and had everybody involved, even down to the electricians. What would we do if there was a power outage? We had every contingency covered, and the head nurse in neurosurgery would have me as her patient. I would lay down on the couch and close my eyes, and she would say, tell me what instruments you need, and she put together the whole package. And it was an amazing endeavor with so many talented people. I was one of the people, and of course, as the lead surgeon, I got the credit, but it was a real team effort. And interestingly enough, that was the first case. There were a number of conjoined cases over the years. And in one of them, I said, why should I be doing this one? This is the number one neurosurgery department in the world. And we got some of the best 
neurovascular surgeons and skull-based surgeons and tumor surgeons. And so I got 18 neurosurgeons involved, and we scheduled them into the operation at the time when their skill would be most appropriate. And by doing it that way, we were 10 hours ahead of schedule. And it really goes to show what can be done when it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And you really take advantage of the talent around you. And if we could learn that as a society, and particularly if our Congress could learn that, boy, could we get a lot done. There's an old Reagan sign he had on his desk that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't mind who gets the credit. But you're sort of a natural team builder. And one of the things you did that was really, I think, very far-sighted and a sign of great citizenship, you and Candy co-founded the Carson Scholars Fund. What inspired yes. that? And what was your goal there? I was doing a lot of speaking in public schools. And whenever you went into the school, first thing you would see is the trophy display. All-state basketball, all-state wrestling, all-state this, that, and the other. And then there's just like a tiny little corner somewhere with the honor roll. And I said, why don't we honor the kids who achieve academically at the highest levels? They're the ones who are going to make big contributions in our society. So that was the birth of the program. And we'll be actually celebrating our 25th anniversary of giving out scholarships next spring. And we're hoping to award the 10th thousandth scholarship and it starts in the fourth grade children who achieve at the highest academic levels but that's only half of it the other half is that they have to demonstrate that they care about other people we need to develop leaders who are not only very smart who actually care about other people and i think it will make the difference in our society From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. You ultimately moved on from surgery, became really famous writing books and giving inspirational speeches, and then ran for president. That must have been a totally different experience. It was for me, and I'd been in politics a long time. So what was it like for you as a learning experience to jump in like that? And at one point, I think you're the only person who was ever ahead of Trump in the preferences. It was pretty amazing. Well, first of all, I never had any intention of going into the political arena. But after the 2013 National Prayer Breakfast, all of a sudden, everybody was saying, you should run for president. Every place I went, I'd be giving speeches, and there'd be all these people with run, Ben, run placards. And I was saying, this is ridiculous. If I just ignore it, it'll go away. But it didn't go away. It actually increased. I had 500,000 petitions in my office. I could barely get in the door, all the boxes of petitions. And I finally said, Lord, this is not something that I particularly want to do, but I don't have all the things that people who run for president have, a Rolodex with all the contacts, a big organization, the money. I don't have any of that stuff, nor do I plan to spend my time developing it. I said, so if you want me to do this, you have to provide all that. The next thing I knew, I had an organization. They were raising more money than the RNC each month. Things just kind of took off, and it was a pretty amazing adventure. But one of the things that I learned is that as I travel to every nook and cranny of the country, we have a lot of people with common sense in this country and good-hearted people who are willing to extend a hand to their neighbor. If you look at the news, you sort of get the impression that the wild-eyed radicals are the main people in this country. That's not true by any stretch of the imagination. And what we have to do is get people to understand that The magic of our nation is our liberty and the freedoms that we have for the pursuit of happiness. Those things will disappear unless we're willing to fight for them. The land of the free and the home of the brave, but you can't be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave. You can't just stand in the corner and hope nobody calls you a racist or some other name. You've got to be willing to get out there and fight for it. And that is such a key issue right now. It will determine what America's future is. So when you were in the middle of all this, when you were 
interacting with all these different people. Did you come out of it more optimistic about the country or more troubled? The times I saw you, you were getting great response. We were having amazing rallies. We would have to do the same rally two, sometimes three times because there were so many people. It gave me a sense that we have a strong future if we have strong leaders. I think President Trump is a strong leader. Now, does he have some faults? Of course, we all have faults. You'll never have to wonder about what he's thinking, that's for sure. But he is a strong leader who I think loves this country. He sometimes shoots himself in the foot, but so does the other side to the extent that I think they kind of cancel each other out. So it's a matter of getting the right message out. Now, there are those like the Never Trumpers, the, the Lincoln Project, who want to make it about the messenger. At this critical juncture in our country, it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. It's about what kind of America do we want? Do we want an America that's up for and by the people or up for and by the government? That is the fundamental question. And what system do you want your children and your grandchildren to live under? The system yeah. of freedom that surrounds our people or a system in which the government takes care of you from cradle to grave, but you have to give them all power. I was really struck when I came over to visit with you at Housing and Urban Development, where you're the secretary, that you don't see it as a collection of buildings. You see it as human beings and that helping the human beings is sort of at the heart of your focus. But could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you bring a almost more of a missionary passion to the job than most secretaries do. And it seems to me you're really about a transformational approach to help people have dramatically better futures. Yes, we've changed our definition of success from the number of people we can get into our programs to the number of people we can get out of our programs and onto a trajectory of self-sufficiency where they can actually realize the American dream. And that's why we've expanded our family self-sufficiency programming. That's why we've initiated the FYI program, the Foster Youth to Independence program, because there were so many uh, young people, about 20,000 a year, who age out of foster care. They're 18 years old. They're out there, <laughs> have no support system. All kinds of bad things happen. We can't do that as a society. But also, one of the things that struck me when I got to HUD is that there was no CFO and had not been a CFO for almost a decade with the billions of dollars floating through there. So we managed to get a terrific CFO from Ernst & Young, a 37-year executive, or Dennis, who came in and brought real financial structure. We worked with the FHA to really bolster the cash reserves. And a lot of people criticized us and they said, why don't you lower the insurance premiums? You've got a little bit of a buffer here. And we said, we have a little bit of a buffer, but we don't have enough of a buffer in case there's a real tragedy at some point. And they said, no, 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 that's just the wrong thing. Well, of course, COVID-19 came along, which was that real tragedy. And we had the resources to be able to deal with it because of that foresight and that thinking about the future. So envision centers also 
which are exploding at a very rapid rate all over the country. Almost every community has resources to help take care of poor people, but they're scattered all over the place. And somebody who's working a low-wage job, they don't have time to go to 17 different locations. And vision centers bring everything under one roof and coordinate it. And they also make the resources from the federal government as well as the state government and local government available in one location. And that is obviously having a very positive impact because we want that young woman who has two or three children to be able to have a place where she can go to and get appropriate child care that she doesn't have to worry about and direction on getting her GED and direction on getting further training so that she can become independent and more importantly, teach that to her children. So you break the cycles of dependency. And you see, one of the things about socialism, they thrive on dependency, dependency on the government. So they do things to increase poverty and leave that poverty in place. They want control of everything, including your health care. And they want you to depend on them for your safety. And it never leads to the kind of tremendous growth and prosperity that you see in a country like America. The Envision Centers really come back also to you chairing the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council, which has a big opportunity zones, which I guess Tim Scott played a major role in getting the president signed up and getting a bill through the Congress. In your judgment, are they actually making an impact? Because there's over 8,000 opportunity zones already. 8,761 to be exact, all over the country. And this was resulted from the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act so that people could invest unrealized capital gains into areas that were designated by each of the governors in each state as economically deprived areas. And if they left the money in for five years, they get a 10% decrement in the capital gains they have to pay on the original investment. That moves up to 15% if they leave it in for seven years. And they don't have to pay any capital gains on the new money realized as a result of the investment if they leave it in for 10 years. So it's a tremendous inducement. And it was expected that over the 10-year period, it would attract about $100 billion. Well, in the first two years, it's already attracted $75 billion. And the CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors, did their report in August to the president on Opportunity Zones, demonstrating that poverty in the Opportunity Zones decreased by 11%. A million people will be lifted out of poverty. And just naming an area as an Opportunity Zone increases the housing values by 1.1%, resulting in a $11 billion new wealth increase in those areas. And those are areas where disadvantaged people live. That's why you don't hear as much criticism now about this only helping the wealthy, because those numbers have come out. It's pretty hard to argue with the facts. Well, and if you combine that with where we were in February when they had the lowest 
African-American and the lowest Latino unemployment numbers in history, there really are a lot of positive undercurrents that are moving towards individuals and families having better lives. That's exactly right. And having an economy, and this is something that I think people don't think about, having an economy that was so strong that it could withstand six months of shutdown and still be functioning and actually starting to rebound is truly amazing. And if we get rid of the silliness and the partisanship and hoping for failure and trying to do things to cause other people to fail so that you can get power, can you imagine what would happen with our economy and with the lives of all of our people? And that's where we need to get once again. I agree. And I think you're personally doing a lot to move us in that direction. And part of that also, if I understand it, has been eliminating a lot of the various regulatory barriers that tied people's hands so they couldn't use common sense. Yeah, that's probably been much more important even than the tax cuts. Tax cuts are nice, but having a situation where people's entrepreneurial spirit and innovation can actually manifest because you're not being slapped down by a ton of regulations and bureaucrats is what has allowed us to survive this coronavirus pandemic that's going on. There have been new businesses that have cropped up during the pandemic simply because we have removed so many of those regulations. If we can continue to keep that the case, the spring back will be just very dramatic. And hopefully after the election, we can make a lot of progress with coronavirus. I think there's been some decreased attention to some of the therapeutics that are very, very promising for various and sundry reasons. And hopefully a lot of those reasons will disappear after the election. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. 
There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If the country validates the direction we're going in, I have a hunch that the second term it'll be easier to get legislation passed to sort of codify and build on the work you've already done. People will be in a mood to find some way to work together rather than just to be hostile with each other. Well, I'm truly hoping so because we have an amazing country. I've been to 68 countries and there is just no place like this nation. It's why it's the destination for so many people. It's why people form caravans trying to get in here. If it was the horrible racist country that people say it was, why would people be trying to get in here? (laughs) That would be the stupidest thing in the world. It's a fabulous country. Do we have defects? Absolutely. It's a country that's inhabited by imperfect people. And imperfect people do imperfect things. That doesn't mean that the country is evil, systemically evil. And that's a very immature approach to take. You have to recognize that your history, the good and the bad and the ugly, your history is what gives you your identity. And your identity is the thing upon which your beliefs are established. So if you get rid of your history, the whole game of cards collapses and you become a tabula rasa, easy bait for anybody to come along and influence and take in another direction. That's what we need to be very careful of right now. And there are those who are just interested in power and their own power. And they're not interested in our history. And they're not interested in the things that we've done and the stability that this country brings to the world. You know this as a student of history, what the world was like before the United States became a power. All these despotic leaders wreaking havoc upon other nations and pummeling them and taking them over. The United States has brought a significant amount of stability to that process. And if the United States were to be diminished, all of those things would be back before you know it. And we have to keep that in mind. So we play a stabilization role in the world without necessarily interfering with the way other people conduct their business. Have you in that sense had a chance to work with and and interact with the equivalent of HUD secretaries in other countries? Yes, I have. And it's been fascinating. And we get some ideals from them, too. Like in Japan, they have a significantly aging population. And some of the things that they do to take care of them, including having traveling grocery stores that come to a certain neighborhood reliably at a certain time every week. And the elderly people can just go down the stairs and load up what they need and go back. And it's fantastic. Those kinds of good ideals, I think, are very helpful. And there's some places in this country 
that have actually started having food vans. And there's a variety of things that I think that we can learn from each other. And I sometimes just fantasize about some of the things that could be happening in our country if we didn't see each other as enemies and as opponents and obstacles to obtaining power. You know, I hope after the election that we can have kind of a reset in that sense and find a way to bring most of us together. You'll never get everybody together. But I think most Americans, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, deep down, I think most of them want the country to succeed because they recognize that the country is them, it's their family. In the absence of them working together, we're faced with a much longer and sadder future, I think. So I think you are one of the people who has that instinct. I mean, I think you are naturally a team builder. For older Americans, that's the case. For a lot of the younger Americans who've been indoctrinated to believe that we're evil systemically, we have our work cut out to give them the real history, to give them the real story, and make them actually proud to be Americans rather than people who don't want to honor our flag, don't want to honor our military, don't want to honor our police because they just think that those are inherently evil things because that's what they've been taught. The left who want to fundamentally change our country, they knew to do that you have to control three things, education, media, and the courts. And two of those they had already in the courts they thought they would get. The 2016 election spoiled those thoughts, and now they're looking for other ways that they can somehow get control of the courts so they can continue their dream. And we have to realize that those people exist. They've called themselves different things. Right now, they call themselves progressives. They've been socialists. They've been communists. They've been Fabians. They've been all kinds of things. But they exist, and they will continue to exist. And we have to present the alternative in a vocal way that our young people can see so that they have a counterbalance. I agree. I was just going to say that one of the great opportunities is going to come up in 2026 when we celebrate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And in past times when we've had those kind of events, they really become national patriotic cycles where people are sort of re-immersed in what has made us an outstanding country and has made American exceptionalism real. The generation that got a really bad education can still learn, and the job's up to us to sort of help teach them. And you're one of those people who is uniquely positioned, both by your life's work and by your personality, to be a leader in doing all that. Well, and I thank just, you. I want to thank you for continuing your career by serving the country. It's a great thing, and I appreciate what you and Candy have sacrificed. And I thank you for staying involved, you and Calesta, because having voices of reason with people with common sense who are smart makes a big difference. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Ben Carson. You can read more about his life and his achievements as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development on our show page at newtsworld.com, where you can also find four videos on the campaign that I think you'll find very interesting. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. 
The artwork for the show was created by Steve Henley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.